Hi there, I'm Leslie Dolphin. Welcome to the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet. The writer Sidney Sheldon once wrote, Libraries store the energy that fuels the imagination. And as a lover of books, I'd agree wholeheartedly. But these days, there's much more to libraries than just books, as my colleague Colin Lowe has been finding out. He's been talking to Bruce Leake, who's chief executive of Suffolk Libraries, which operates as a charity. Bruce began by explaining more about its background. Just over 10 years ago, uh, the council announced some plans to uh, reduce the scale of the library service by think about half. And that created quite a lot of public uproar um, because people felt obviously that libraries are a really integral part of their community. Um, there were quite a few sort of public protests. And in the end, the council decided um, sort of to change their approach, but they still needed to save some money. Um, so what they decided to do was to create a separate entity um, to run the library service, and that's how Suffolk Libraries was born. We were what's called an industrial and problem society, but two things about that is that they don't exist anymore um, as, a, as a corporate entity, um, and also nobody knows what they are. So our auditors confidently tell us we can call ourselves a charity, um, but we're effectively a mutual. So and what that means is that each one of our libraries um, has a friends group, um, which is an independent charity in its own right. Um, and from within each of those independent groups, um, one person can put themselves forward every year to be elected to our board. Um, and that's the sort of cooperative or the mutual bit, which is that we're sort of, if you like, run by the community for the community because we have people elected from the community to be part of our board. Right. Oh, and uh, how many uh, libraries are there across Suffolk then? How many uh, organisations are you effectively bringing together through that? Until last year, there were 44. Now there's 45 because we opened a new site in Morton Hall on the outskirts of Bury St Edmunds in August of last year. Um, so there are 45 friends groups. And we're also looking at the moment, we also have a couple of pop-up libraries, um, which appear in a community setting once a week for an afternoon a week. Um, in fact, we have three one in uh, Ransom, sort of on the outskirts of Ipswich, around sort of Rushmere, um, one on the Shotley Peninsula, and one in Red Lodge, sort of near Newmarket. And though two of those groups are also think two of those um, settings are also thinking about setting up a friends group as well. So we may end up having forty-seven. Now, my recollection of uh, libraries really originates from I grew up in Felixstowe, and the Felixstowe Library is an amazing. Well, first of all, it's an amazing building. It's quite unusual, um, but it's quite a cavernous space as well. It's huge, very high ceilings. And all I remember was shelves and shelves and shelves of books, which I suppose isn't a surprise for libraries. But um, also the thing that probably got me in there more than books was records. Uh, so this would have been up to the sort of mid 80s. Um, uh, I guess for some people that might be their only experience of libraries is books and maybe even records yeah i mean libraries are a fascinating thing i mean when i started this job five years ago i'd only taken my kids to the library um in the last sort of five years and didn't really understand the breadth of stuff that was available either myself um so one of the big challenges we have is <clears throat> getting people to understand that we we have millions of books still and we have loads of other formats and lots of entertainment but we also do loads of other things. Um, so, for example, every year in Suffolk, we run 10,000 activities, events and experiences across those 45 sites. Um, and they can vary from anything from, um, we do quite a lot of gigs in libraries now. We had one on um, Saturday night in Capel St Mary Library, for example. All of our libraries have wheelable shelving. Um, so you said about the cavernous space at Felixstowe Library, 
that can actually become quite a large venue as well. Um, so like I said, we do gigs, fashion shows, but we also have loads of really powerful um, sort of socially connecting regular groups and activities. So some of the things you'd be very familiar with, like um, some of the earlier stuff that we do, Baby Bounce, Top Rock for parents and their children. Uh, we also have quite a big network of um, sessions that are designed to help support older people who may be on their own. Um, and through the library, we help them create a network. They meet in the library every week and then they also meet outside of the library. We also do loads of other stuff on top of that. We do coding clubs, Lego clubs, um, we have lots and lots of well-being focused stuff. So these days we also do um, on-site, um, for example, a physical activity program called Jumpstart. So we do circuits uh, in the library. Uh, we do yoga, Pilates, um, and we do all sorts of different things on a local basis as well. So probably the most important thing to highlight is that one of the most powerful things about the charitable model that we now have is that each site is empowered to deliver services that meet the needs of their community. And that can be anything from a men can talk group at Chantry Library through to a sewing therapy group at Thurston Library, table tennis at Beckles, you know, you name it, we will do it if there's a need in the community and it's something people want to do, we'll try and make it happen. So that's probably the thing that's changed the most about libraries is that they're very dynamic, very flexible and very focused on delivering experiences um, and stuff that the people in the community really need versus just the maybe the transactions that you might have had when you went into the library and got your book stamped. So we still do that, but we do loads of other stuff besides, and we're much more of a sort of hub in the center of the community that people come to for all sorts of types of different support. So when I think back to the 80s, I think um, books were generally quite expensive because wasn't there some uh, rule in place about the minimum cost of a book um, going back a little way? And then that was effectively taken away so that people can buy books quite cheaply now, obviously online. You can use your reader on your phone and so on. So has there been a change in the demand for books from libraries? Has that been something that you've had to accommodate? I think... You know, we still have, I mean, we loan over three million items every year. So um, there's still a massive um, usage of what's on offer. What I would say is going back to my sort of um, point about experiences over transactions. When you're going to do a transaction now, most people, and I'll say the majority now, actually, it's, it's definitely true, will look online for that transaction. So we have a massive digital catalogue. And what's changed about the way people use books particularly is that they will use an audio book, they will download an ebook from us rather than coming across the threshold to get a physical book. Although million, there are still millions of physical books that we loan as well. And there's a massive audience for that too, because a lot of people just like the feel of a book in their hand. Mm. But like I said, what we see is visitors coming to do probably less of those physical transactions for the physical book, but with even more online. So we're increasing our borrowing all the time, but more and more of it's going online. And what people come to visit us for is those events and activities I described earlier, as well as sort of some of the traditional book loaning. So it's a model that's changing all the time. But like I said, the community, um, the being at the center of the community thing is really important because that's what enables people to come together. Um, a lot of people come to still loan that physical book, but a lot of people will go online and access one that way as well. Right, okay. Uh so, um, again, I guess some people who haven't been into a library for a while might still have the perception of uh, complete silence, um, not much going on, people tiptoeing around, you know, don't want to disturb anybody else. Is that still yeah. the same? No, definitely not. I mean, I did an interview um, 
and again they were using they were they were using some of that language for um anglia itv anglia a couple of weeks ago and we had to stop the filming about five or six times because it was so noisy that they couldn't hear what i was saying so um and i just described earlier as well about how we sort of host gigs and stuff like that now we often have open mic nights for young people all sorts of different things there is still quiet space i should say you know for example at ipswich county library um <clears throat> there's a beautiful area there which is a sort of silent study space so we still offer that um, and often I get you know asked by people you know well doesn't that put off a lot of people who might want to go for that quiet space but we still offer that and some of our spaces are still you know fairly peaceful but generally speaking depending on what's happening on any given day you know for example in Woodbridge Library when they have their earliest sessions I think they get over sort of um, 60 sometimes 70 sort of um, children and their parents obviously it's not going to be quiet then <laughs> so it's a, it's a mixture but like i said we do have dedicated areas but most of the time you'll you'll hear a sort of um relatively lively hubbub of stuff going on because we definitely you know don't want people to feel constricted by believing that it's a quiet space because it certainly isn't mm -hmm. on, on the other hand it's it's great that you continue to offer that because where else can you go nowadays to find somewhere quiet um you can't sit in a coffee shop if you want to do some work because that's noisy and quite rightly so um you know there's there's no way you can find these days that's quiet unless you're fortunate enough to have your own home or something like that um so yeah for people who want to study that must be a real lifesaver that you've got that space still available yeah and it's really well you, you know but and particularly sort of um either students from university in ipswich for example would use that or um schools uh school sort of age students who are maybe doing their a levels we have a lot sort of that age of person will go to that space and use it as a sort of dedicated place where they can really concentrate and we have that across a number of our sites so yeah so we yeah and that enables us to access that audience as well and sort of engage them in other stuff that we're doing too which is great so so looking at the other services that you offer particularly during the daytime it sounds like there's lots of activities throughout the evening weekends all sorts of things that are going on uh what about for people who perhaps don't have it because i understand that that's an issue that um you're trying to help people out with as well so lack of computer access yeah i mean we have a number of different services that we offer there every every site um has a at least one pc obviously some of our sites are quite small but some of the bigger ones like ipswich has about 30 public access pcs we offer free Wi-Fi at all of our sites, so if you have your own device, you can use that. Um, and until fairly recently, unfortunately, we ran out of funding for this. We were doing um, a scheme which started during the lockdowns at, called Device to Your Door, um, where a colleague would um, either cycle or drive a device to your house um, with a, a 4G dongle. Um, and you could borrow that laptop and a 4G dongle for two weeks to do essential stuff like um, if you had to do a GP's appointment online, for example, um, or do a job application or whatever it was you're trying to do and you couldn't get out, didn't have the device, we delivered it to you. And then we traver we sort of changed that into laptop loans where you could just come into the site, borrow a laptop for a couple of weeks. But like I said, unfortunately, we can't afford to pay for the, um, uh, the 4G dongles anymore because they're quite expensive sort of annual costs. So we are still looking for some funding for that, but that's another way that we've helped people get online. And we also do offer um, a, a, quite a few of our sites as well. You can borrow um, an iPad or um, a tablet which is um, internet enabled as well um, and we run a number of schemes with either with district councils or other partners to help support people that way and then also we have some partners in terms of we have about 1200 active volunteers at Suffolk libraries and some of those volunteers run specific sessions in local libraries to help people who aren't 
um, digitally literate who don't know how to use a device, um, help them get online. And we also have quite a big partnership now with Communities Together East Anglia, which is another charity um, where we run sessions called Tea and Tech Together um, at our spaces, um, where generally they help older people to get online and they'll bring in a device that maybe they've been given that they don't know how to use, and then someone will coach them and help support them to get online. So yeah, we do yeah. lots of things and we're working with the council to try and offer um, a much more consistent set of um, support, particularly in terms of helping support people um, sort of to get online going forward. And that must be a massive issue because from my understanding, pretty much all benefits you need to claim for need to be done online. Um, banking now is moving online and high street banks are disappearing. So there must be a greater need for that, particularly perhaps in people who've been perhaps understandably reluctant to um, start using IT because they have concerns, but there must be huge needs there. There is, and I mean, all of our staff, I should say, all of our professional staff um, are highly trained in all sorts of different areas. One of them is in, for example, you mentioned sort of um, applying for benefits. Um, they're all um, trained to support people in uh, applying for universal credit. So for example, we get lots of people coming to us who just need a bit of help and support navigating that online. So a member of staff will sit down with them at a PC and show them how they can go about the application, um, which is one of the really sort of powerful things that, that we're able to help support people with. We also have a partnership, um, I think it's at seven of our sites now with Barclays, um, who come in once or twice a week, meet their customers there, but also help other people um, who aren't customers to understand sort of how to access um, sort of financial services online um, as well. So one of the other powerful things that we do because we are at the heart of the community and work with lots of different organizations is, is that we have all of these partnerships with specialists um, who help us to help other people. So we, for example, another example would be the Sisters Advice Bureau regularly pop into a number of our sites to help people with other types of um, advice they might have. Again, a lot of which relates to getting online um, and sort of applying for something that will help support them. Mm -hmm. Funny enough, I was thinking of, of them and that there must be a significant overlap that you have with citizens' advice in many ways. Yeah, I think the, the main difference is that we do signposting um, and, you know, some softer side advice, but they will do the specialist advice and guidance. Um, there is quite a clear delineation, but we work together very closely. Um, and we probably deal with, vol you know, well, they deal with volume as well, but we deal with massive volume because we've got so many sites. And you know we have bigger infrastructure, so we do a lot more of that signposting, either to partners that we work with on site, to services that we provide ourselves, or to them for that enhanced level of guidance and support that they might need. Right. Wow. Goodness me. Um, yeah, it seems like that it's become a very much a whole community focus really if as you say you're looking to each independent site to almost consider the, the issues that need to be addressed in that locality that's right yeah and i, I think um you know our biggest strength definitely um is the people that um work for us and our colleagues you know are just well since i've been doing this job i've just been blown away almost every day by you know two or three different things that we're doing initiatives that we've decided to um, deliver at a local level based on either conversations or needs that we found. Um, and there are so many amazing people um, who give up loads of their own time just to make a massive difference to lives across the piece. You know, and as I mentioned, the Men Can Talk group, um, Vicky, the manager at Chantry Library, set that up with a group of a sort of um, diverse group of men 
who all had different challenges that she'd spoken to as part of her role um, and, you know, got them together and said, would it be helpful if you guys sat down and talked about some of your challenges together? And it's become a really successful and really powerful thing for them. You know, we've, we've done sort of a number of interviews with the media because it was quite a sort of unique thing when it was set up. And they've, you know, talked very fluently about how it's helped support sort of changes in their lives and, and help them sort of cope with some of the challenges that they face. And we have lots of things like that. You know, the sewing therapy I also mentioned, um, <clears throat> there was a lady um, who was interested in sewing. Thurston just decided she'd like to set up a sewing group. And then in the end, the people that joined that group turned out to be people who had either were housebound, had disabilities, had other challenges. Um, and together the group grew. Um, but we're also able to share again in the same way that the men can talk group could some of those challenges um, and it's helped them form a network in the library but also outside of the library which is really powerful and we really specialize in that sort of stuff um, in bringing people together helping them with whatever challenges they face and providing them with a solution and a focal point that maybe where there's a shared interest um, that can lead to other things as well which is great so and there's there's millions of stories like that but it's all down to um, I guess the tenacity the persistence and also the empathy that our colleagues always show towards sort of um, working with people who use their spaces. So how many uh, people do you have involved in the library? Because you have a combination of employees and volunteers. I, from yeah, what, so what I, I mean, we have we have 430 odd um, professional staff, although we have lots of people on, you know, some very variable contracts. So the full time equivalent is about 185. And it's also bolstered by the fact that we run 12 um, prison libraries across the country um, so we have a lot of colleagues who work in those those settings as well um, and then we have 1200 active volunteers some of whom are um, part of those friends groups I described earlier um, but a lot of those people will volunteer to do specific things so they might come to they don't the professional staff do all of the sort of professional work but the volunteers will support in all sorts of different ways they might run some of the sessions that I described like some of the events or activities they might help people get online. Um, they might do something else in terms of um, supporting some of our outreach work, like our home library service, for example, where we go into people's homes, we deliver books to them, but also it's more than the books. It's about a conversation and about engaging with that person who might be housebound for whatever reason. Um, and it's about the relationship. So those volunteers really enable us to add massive value to the service and increase the options that are available to the general public. You're listening to the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet. And this week, Colin Lowe's guest is Bruce Leake, Chief Executive of Suffolk Libraries. So how did you get by through COVID then? What what happened then? Because it seems like it's a very sort of site-bound, well, maybe I'm misunderstanding this, but the, the sites are pretty critical to everything that you do. So if people weren't able to come into those, what were, what was happening then? Well, one of the best things and the worst things about COVID was obviously um, sort of not being able to have people across the threshold physically. But one of the great things about our model is that because we're not in the local authority, if we were a local authority library service, our website would be buried like five or six clicks from the front page of um, the local authority website, whereas we have our own dedicated website, suffolklibraries.co.uk. And so because we're a smaller, more agile organization, within two days of going into lockdown, we completely transformed our website um, into something that was focused on delivering the service online. Um, and how, 
how we sort of um, made that happen was obviously we have our own in-house digital um, team, but what we did was put a much greater focus on replacing the services um, that we were doing on site and doing them online instead. So we used to use Facebook Live, for example, all the time um, to deliver all sorts of different events and activities online. So we, we started hosting a lot of the, the networks and groups that we had online, either through Zoom, um, a lot of the active public activities that we did a lot of early years stuff, and um, we would just do via Facebook Live. I think on I can't remember which one it was. We had a session uh, that Southwold host that ran for it was supposed to just be for their local sort of Facebook page, but I think they ended up having 600 attendees, some from <laughs> Australia, India, and places like that for a, a baby bounce session, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just used a lot of different sort of um, social media formats, TikTok, um, Instagram. Um, on top of what we were already using Twitter um, to promote some of the stuff we were doing as well so that we got the message out there. And then we started to develop specialist stuff. And I mentioned Jumpstart, our physical activity program. That started during lockdown. Um, And for example, we started running those Pilates, yoga and sort of pound fit sessions and some chair-based exercise sessions as well to keep people moving during the lockdowns. And one of the Pilates sessions, I think, was attended by about 5,000 people, for example. (laughs) So some of those things were really, really successful. And then, like I said, I mentioned um, device to your door. We started to set up when the lockdowns got um, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, eased or reduced. Eased or a bit, like, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Basically, we started to set up some other different types of services that did sort of use the physical site when people could go back to it as a focal point. So, for example, we had a service where you, we could either curate a set of books for you. If you told us what sort of books you're interested in, you come pick them up. So sort of click and collect service from the library Great. or you could just sort of re- reserve your books and we would create a little bundle for you and you just pick it up from a desk without because you couldn't come into the site at that point. And then we used to have to disinfect all the books. Um, <laughs> so there was they all had to be there was a really stringent guidance about how you did it. So they all had to be opened and then left for a quarantine period. Um, so it was all very complicated. Um, mm. But, yeah, we you know, we made it work and we made it work because of the type of organization we are. Um, and we were doing that also during that period we sort of started doing online author talks as well which we've developed into a thing that we do regularly now but um as we had a lot of really good authors who came along um and just did sessions online through zoom and stuff like that where they would talk about maybe a book they'd written and then some of our um customers would just ask them have the ability to ask some questions and engage them during that so lots of different things i think we even had a dance party for kids as well actually online (laughs) um which we did with dance east um which was really successful as well i think we had about two or three hundred people at that um children and their parents so yeah we did lots of different things during that period but all of it was focused on sort of trying to continue to support and engage the audiences that we already um, were working with on physical sites but just in a very different way and we've taken away some of the lessons from that and still develop deliver some of those services now but obviously more focused on physical sites but also online so jumpstart for example i mentioned the fitness program we do stuff on site. But we also do it online as well. So we sort of do a hybrid. Oh, amazing. So um, I guess for some of these things, there's a charge made and for other things, their services that are offered free. I mean, generally speaking, almost everything we do is free. Um, there are a few things that we, well, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that we charge for. <laughs> they might, you know, the online um, book festivals that we run with authors, sometimes we make a suggestion that you might want to make a donation to our charity. But generally speaking, um, we don't charge all the activity. You don't even need a library card to attend a session in one of our libraries because we are a universal service. 
we want to make ourselves as accessible as possible and so you know we don't want any barriers to entry and a library card's a great thing to have you know it, it offers you um for example um access to three million um free tunes online um literally tens of millions of books and other types of content um but you don't need to have one to come and attend one of our um, sessions you can just walk in and just be and there for the day whatever the session is and it's free so is all your funding directly from local authority or do you raise funds in addition how, how does that all work so basically when the library service was in the county council um before it became independent it used to cost them about nine million pounds a year um they now pay us six million pounds a year because it's a statutory service um so all all local authorities across the country are obliged to pay for the library service and by statute it has to be um, a comprehensive and efficient service but that definition obviously isn't particularly tight so it's down to the local authorities um sort of i guess interpretation of what that means um they've basically pay us to run the service as the library experts and have great confidence in what we're doing you know and we're regularly flagged as one of the best library services in the country in terms of the way that we operate and the model that we have um, and that's down to a really strong partnership with the council. And even though they do pay us less money, um, one of the key things that they wanted to achieve by setting up this model was for um, whoever ran the service to make it a, a more, um, I guess, self-sufficient service. And, you know, we've done a really good job of that. So a lot of the additional funding that we've sourced, because even though the council pays three million pounds le less a year, you know we still top that up with quite a significant amount of money that we generate ourselves just over two million pounds um which generally comes from a combination of things um some of it is fundraised some of it comes through um commercial income that we generate so the prison libraries that we run 12 of them across the country is a commercial relationship with an education provider who does educate they do education in prisons and then we provide the library service that supports that education provision and they pay us to do that um, and that money gets reinvested into the library that we make from that gets reinvested into the library service in Suffolk. We have lots of site-based um, ways that we generate income, which took a bit of a hit as a result of COVID, but all coming back now, we do a lot of room hire, for example, as you'd imagine in the middle of the community with 45 sites. It's strange things like printing and photocopying as well, because there are so many less options available on the high street, also generate a reasonable amount of money. Um, in Ipswich County Library, um, on behalf of national government, we run <coughs> Um, a visa service as well so anybody who's looking to get a UK visa can come to the library and get all of the documentation sort of verified um, and again that's a sort of commercial relationship and then we do a number of other different things we do merchandising and greeting cards and stuff like that across all of our sites as well so quite a bit of retail um, which contributes that two million pounds and a big part of the two million pounds is restricted funding um, and that funding is generally from grants that enable us to to develop services that improve the offer to the general public. So an example of that would be annually, we get paid um, on about £300,000 a year by the Arts, by Arts Council England to be what's called a national portfolio organisation. And what that means is that they recognise what we're doing to be culturally significant. And the programme that they pay for is basically focused on engaging young people in all sorts of different art forms. So I mentioned open mic nights, but we've done bronze casting, virtual reality stuff, um, we created a community garden at Stowe Market Library, for example, with young people. So that's all part of that programme. We've recently just got funded by the Department of Health and Social Care to run a scheme called Menopause and Me, which is targeted um, at um, SMEs in Suffolk. 
which is all about helping them help colleagues who are um, starting to be impacted by the perimenopause or the menopause. Um, and we have lots of other restricted funds that have specific output. I could talk for a long time about it, so I'm not going to go to all of them. No, no, um, no, great. But one of the other, the most successful bits of funding, which also comes from the council, but is separate to our relationship in relation to libraries and is co-commissioned um, with the NHS, um, is some funding that we use for our wellbeing service, which is probably one of the things that we're best known for in the library sector more broadly. And we were the first library service in the country to have its own dedicated wellbeing service, which we run in partnership with Suffolk Mind and Suffolk Family Carers. And that has a number of different outputs to it. It has a specialist website called Sages, which is all about helping people um, understand how they can um, support their mental health and emotional needs. Um, but we also run open space sessions at each, uh, not each of us, sorry, at eight of our libraries, which are facilitated by us and Suffolk Mind and also by um, Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust. Um, and there where people who have some specific wellbeing challenges can come together in an open space in the library, participate in the session, which we're facilitating or not, as they, they the case may be. But the most powerful thing, again, is about that network of people they meet and the support they get outside of the library, as well as the support we're able to offer in the library. And the most important part about the wellbeing services and why it's so successful is that people will come to the library because it's a safe, neutral and stigma free space where there aren't any badges or labels that say I'm coming from mental health or a wellbeing intervention. It's just somewhere safe and neutral. They can come feel welcome, but also get the help and support they need. So. That I've sort of digressed a bit from our funding mix, but our funding mix is really powerfully focused on saving um, pub the public purse, but at the same time, adding value to the offer. And probably the most important part about the funding is that even though the council pay a lot less than they did 10 years ago, we do loads more. We've got one extra site. We run, I, I wish I could put this into a specific number. We run dozens more services um, than we did when we were in the council. We have longer opening hours and we still have the same wonderful professional staff. And then on top of that, we can talk about this in a bit more detail in a minute, I guess. Um, we've had a number of different types of research um, done over time to evidence mm. the fact that we are having a massive impact um, on Suffolk and on people's health and well-being particularly. Um, and the most recent piece of research we, which we released um, uh, last month, well, a couple of months ago, a couple of months ago now, um, which we did, um, we commissioned accounting practice, more Kingston Smith to do it, who specialise in calculating um, what's called social value, um, which is <clears throat> um, value derived from a much broader um, suite of things than just a sort of financial number. So it's about well-being, it's about other things. And it also reflects where you're making savings for sort of statutory partners. And they calculated that our service generates £41 million worth of social value every year which is a return on investment to the money spent on it of about um, six pounds, or about exactly six pounds and seven pence for every pound spent. Um, and that our services are saving um, the NHS 540,000 um, pounds every year as well. Um, and those are all very conservative estimates because their model is very much about not overclaiming because a lot of people say, well, you know, everyone says that. But, you know, like I said, it's a very, very credible and um, a very a, a world-renowned methodology they use. And it's really, really... Um, important piece of research that highlights the value of what libraries do versus maybe what people's perceptions are about them. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think that's a bit that's a bit of an eye opener to me um, to just understand how much more you do than those uh, books and records that I saw uh, 30 plus years ago. So yeah, it's amazing what's what's a available and b um, 
uh, made use of. That's the, that's the most important thing. It's fine for something to be available, but you can tell if it's appropriate because people will use it. Definitely, definitely. And I think, you know, like I said, going back to the events and activities, you know, we were increasing attendance of those by an average about four or five percent every year. We had over sort of 200,000 attendances before COVID and we're getting up to sort of that number again. But they've since lockdown ended every quarter, which, you know, we have performance meetings with the council, all of our numbers just keep going up and up and up. So, you know, we're definitely being used. You know, people see the library as a more and more relevant thing to them. And we haven't talked about the cost of living crisis, but we've, you know, we've, we've had a big campaign recently and that's been focused on helping support people through the cost of living crisis. We decided not to focus on the warm spaces aspect of it, although that is what we've, we've been providing for decades anyway, because there's quite a bit of stigma attached to coming to a warm space. Um, so we've called our campaign Be Kind In Kind. We've been very lucky to, and we have lots of partners, as I've already said, but two of our sort of um, regular partners, Paddy and Scott's Coffee and the East of England Carb have really helped us um, this year to help people. And so as a result of their support, we've been able to give, um, offer free hot drinks, almost all of our sites um, throughout the winter. Um, as part of that campaign, we also have kindness racks at, at almost every site where you can pick up a clean piece of secondhand winter clothing if you have the need for that. We offer free device charging, free menstrual products, free hygiene products in most of our sites. A lot of our sites offer low cost food provision. For example, Gainsborough Library offers fresh fruit and veg bags for two pounds um, every week. Um, and we have a lot of pop-up food banks now as well, one at Chantry Library, and as well as a number of community fridges. Um, and then we're also doing practical stuff like hosting loads of different um, sessions that teach people how to repair their clothes. Um, and we also try to engage with other partners like Anglian Water to get them to come along and do sessions to highlight how people can save money on their water bills and stuff like that. So we're always looking at practical solutions to help people. Um, and that's the most powerful thing about our services that we are there to meet the needs of the community. And when there is a need, we'll do everything we can to find a solution that helps people either practically in some of the ways I've just described or in other ways. So how are you made aware of needs or how do you determine whether a need is something that you feel you can address? I, it's really interesting because um, if you if you spoke to anyone in a local authority or in the NHS, they talk about co-production, which is basically having a conversation with someone, <laughs> finding out what they want. Um, but there's all sorts of sort of, you know, people make a big thing of, oh, we've done a co-production. But actually what we do is because we are in the heart of the community, we're talking to people every single day. So we have this, I guess the best way to describe it is just this ongoing co-production process where, you know, colleagues, because they know people, and a good example of this would be actually during the lockdown. And one thing I didn't mention was when we first went into lockdown, it was all like everyone was completely freaked out, obviously, because it's a really, really scary thing. Um, and again, this kind of highlights what the point I'm making about this co-production is our local library staff knew by face and by name the majority of vulnerable people in their area. So immediately, because we have their data on their library cards, we were able to work out who the people who would really be struggling, who would be on their own, who might not have any support. And we just started ringing them up, um, saying we're, you know, it's your local library service, you know, it's, it's, um, it's Helen here from Woodbridge, um, Marjorie, you know, like I said, we, we, you know, we, we know we see you sort of every couple, you know, every couple of days, you just wanna make sure you're all right. And so we made about 11,000 calls during the first sort of three or four months of lockdown um, and sort of help people, support people in all sorts of different ways, whether it just being having that conversation or hooking them up with some practical support um, through the sort of knowledge we had. So that's a really good example of where we know the people 
we know the issues they have, we know the challenges they face, and that's why we're able to find solutions for them, but also in an emergency situation like that, able to react and know how who to talk to, how to talk to them, and be that, I guess, that safe, um, that safe person that they can feel comfortable talking to that doesn't come with some of the other caveats that maybe some of the other services do. Yeah, goodness. Well, that's, uh, as you say, if you're that close to um, your clients, customers, I guess, then you become aware of the needs which which they themselves have. Yeah, and it's what, you know, like I said, it's we're in an ongoing conversation with the NHS at the moment about they've just moved across to this model of integrated care systems. And a lot of it is about helping people to be supported better in the community and having care pathways that meet their needs and what they want in terms of sort of having a more personalized journey and you know we're so beautifully placed for that but it's just going back to the start of this conversation you know it's getting people away from thinking about books and records and actually understanding that we're all about you know community all about talking to people and all about helping people Um, and in so many ways this conversation very much reflects what the NHS is trying to do in terms of helping people and probably ultimately preventing them from going to a place where they actually need intervention from primary or secondary care so you know like i said it's for us it's really important that the message gets out there that we're here we're not a replacement for any of those services definitely not but we're something that can help can reduce the burden on other services but also really help people in the way they want to be helped yeah yeah amazing yeah there's so many things there and as you say we've only scratched the surface but um it's been absolutely fascinating to hear about what what's progressed and what's changed over well probably 25, 30 years, I guess, but most especially in the last 10, it sounds like in, in Suffolk. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like I said, we're really proud of the service that we run, as I hope you can tell. Um, but mainly, you know, like I said, I think, you know, it's just, it's all about the people that work for us. They're just amazing. And, you know, it's difficult to say it when you're, when you're the chief executive, well, it's easy to say when you're the chief executive, but like I said, it, it, if I was working somewhere else and came in for a week, I'd still be a mate. You know, it's just, you you there's just so many great people and they're the they're the they're what makes it all happen definitely yeah that is fascinating um thank you so much bruce really appreciate your time um no, this morning, just telling us a little bit thank you for, <laughs> thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk well I just feel we've only sort of scratched the surface really and all the myriad of things that you provide and offer but yeah it sounds like you're absolutely at the heart of the community in suffolk and i think we ought to be very grateful for that yeah, no, I mean, you know, we, we never take it for granted. We just want to be useful and helpful and support people wherever we can. So we appreciate any support, but also we're there for everyone when they need us. Well, as much as anything else, I think anyone who's listening, just go into your local library, see what they've got, see what's on offer, try and support it. Because either we use it or we lose it, I suppose. No, definitely. And, you know, like I said, we are already really well used, but we're always looking to engage with different audiences. So please come visit us if you haven't been for a while. Well, you will be surprised, definitely. Bruce Leake, the Chief Executive of Suffolk Libraries, telling Colin Lowe what's changed among the bookshelves in recent years and about the myriad of activities and services that they now offer. What a transformation. If you have a guest who you think that either Colin or myself should meet for a chat for the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet, then please let us know. You can find out more by visiting our website, suffolkmoney.co.uk. And the more unusual, the better. I'd just like to thank as well the team behind the scenes who make this podcast happen. That's Joy Day and Sally and Kevin Birch. And thank you, of course, to you for listening. Until our next podcast, goodbye.